Hello and welcome to this talk on lies you are being told about rest. My name is Daryl Miller. You can find me on Twitter here. I have a blog where I write about HTTP stuff there. I work for RunScope as a developer advocate. We solve API problems fast. We can log, monitor, measure, and share HTTP requests. I was involved with the Web API Advisory Board and I was a co-author of the book Evolvable Web APIs with ASP.NET. I've been Microsoft MVP for the last four years as an integration MVP. And the objectives of this talk, brief history of REST. Um, you know, I considered doing the standard REST talk. This is how you can do it. But the problem is when you're going out to learn about REST, uh, there's so much information out there and so much of it is wrong. So I decided that this would be more of a guide to how to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to uh, trying to learn about REST. And I'm hoping that this will be a fairly interactive talk. Uh, feel free to... Uh, ask questions and challenge my assertions. So REST uh, describes the architectural style of the web. Uh, it is interesting in that the dissertation where REST is introduced uh, as an example of principal design actually came after the uh, the web or HP 1.1 was, was, was written and um, so REST describes the goals of some of the changes that were made in HTTP 1.1. So why should you care about REST? See, REST is a, a way of building distributed systems, uh, web APIs, microservices, business-to-business -business interactions, mobile applications, uh, and it focuses on long-term evolvability of those systems. In fact, Roy Fielding, who's quoted as saying, most of REST constraints are focused on preserving independent evolvability over time, which is only measurable on the scale of years. So this is the problem, right? Is It's not a quick fix. Like REST is, there's effort to be put into building RESTful systems and we tend to live in a quick, quick fix world. So when should you consider using REST. So REST is important where evolvability matters. It's when you're building systems and you don't control necessarily both ends of the wire, right? How many users do you have, right? So do you have do you have 10 users so it's really easy to go and update the client software that's using it? Or do you have 10,000 deployments out there? Right? Is, is it just one client application, one mobile app you've written? Or do you have a mobile app and third-party integrators? And do you have a website? And do you have you know, all these different types of interactions? In which case, the implications of change in your system could be so much more significant. And I mentioned before, is like, do you control both ends of the wire? Right? If you can force updates on your users so they don't have a choice, then maybe you can synchronize the deployment of updates to the server along with updates to the client. But it's often not easy to do. And even though you may be able to deploy those updates, there could be that period of time where you haven't yet deployed that update and are things going to break in the meanwhile? And can you stand having those failures for that short period of time? You may not even control the clients at all if it's third party. 
So the rest constraints are all about reducing, focusing, controlling the coupling between clients and servers to make things easier to change, to make the components easier to change. But I mean, there are obviously alternatives to building distributed systems. You know, we've tried to do distributed objects for many, many years with efforts with Corba and those big vendors, Iona and Orbs and all of this, DCOM. We keep trying to do it even now, uh, sending objects over the wire and using serializers, but we've had difficulties and, and it comes down to coupling. Coupling is what breaks things. Uh, when you're not explicit about the coupling between systems and you accidentally change things that break other systems. Um, there's other event-based integration type systems, service buses and things like that, but those require, um, those are very popular within larger enterprises. They require more complex uh, capabilities on the client side often. Um, and it's definitely a viable option for certain scenarios. Um, probably better for lower volume of clients and services um, as opposed to very high volume. Where in the rest world, we're used to dealing with a very high volume of clients and a low volume of, of servers. Uh, RPC uh, is another technique that's used to enable distributed infrastructure. Um, I mean, th that's really what SOAP and XML RPC were trying to do. Um, it, it unfortunately, although it is very convenient and works well for developers initially, uh, it has the long-term problems of that it does tend to gloss over the challenges of distributed computing and the fallacies of distributed computing come into effect and network failures aren't handled as well as they should be and administrative changes and changes in infrastructure all these things happen and RPC tends to break in the process so it tends not to be particularly resilient to change. And we went through a period of time with SOAP, right? And SOAP was the big thing um, for quite a number of years. A lot of vendors put a lot of time and effort into building tooling and building specs in order to make SOAP successful. Um, but there was a retaliation against it. Uh, the tooling, the tooling was complex, and therefore the SOAP systems became fragile. People started to not like XML because some people went a little crazy with what you could do with XML. Um, and many of it, personally, I kind of blame a lot of it is, is, is on featureitis in vendor tools. Um, the vendors tried to be incredibly clever because you know, the, the, the pointy-haired boss, the middle management, wants their developers to have super high productivity so they are sold on tools that promise the world of we're going to be able to produce this application over the weekend and have it running in production on Monday. And tool vendors promise that and middle managers buy it and poor developers get stuck with it. Um, you know, SOAP is, is usually tied with the notion of RPC, but that actually is just a, um, 
a, a sad footnote in history. Uh, the first version of SOAP in 2000 mentioned using it for doing RPC. But by 2001, it was actually fixed. If you look at the SOAP specification and look at the example, uh, it shows showing a sending a message um, to pick up Mary at school at 2 p.m. This is not um, a procedurally oriented mechanism. But unfortunately, again, the tool vendors grabbed hold of the notion of being able to make it really easy to make remote calls and build a whole load of tooling infrastructure in there. And so it became tied to the notion of uh, RPC. Unfortunately, we're kind of doing it again with the JSON HTTP world because we're now reinventing WSDL as Swagger and RAML and API Blueprint and all of these different uh, API descriptions with the intent of, oh, it's okay, we can now code generate, we can generate documents and we can code generate client proxies and we can do all this work and make it really easy. The cost of what we're doing is fragility. We are going to head right back to the fragile days of uh, SOAP, where if you're not using the same set of tooling on the client and the server, then any small amount of change could easily break. Now, maybe I'm just, you know, being a little pessimistic here, but that's certainly where it feels like we're going. So, SOAP was, was, was down and out. It was too heavy. We, we, we blame it for all sorts. It's so heavy and it's so cumbersome and it's so this and so that. When in actual fact, it can be used in a fairly lightweight way. Um, you know, it's, it's blamed that it did not use the uh, appropriate um, uh, HP verbs because, well, it used, it always used post. Well, no, actually, 1.1 recommended using both the post and the get method uh, within SOAP, but it's just that was never implemented by many of the tooling vendors. So, you know, it, it, it got a bit of a bum rap, and, and we, we turned, the industry turned uh, to a new fashion fad and we, we, we came up with we, we decided rest was the new thing um, the problem with rest is that it um, uh, it's not that easy to really grok it's an architectural style which means it isn't very precisely defined how to do it there's a set of constraints that provide guidelines but within that there's a lot of flexibility and that's not what the developers wanted they wanted prescriptive guidance that told them how to do rest so the web api frameworks the frameworks came along and said here we'll show you how to do rest and they created implementations based on their understanding of rest at the time and what quickly ended up being is instead of REST being what REST is, REST became whatever the API vendors or the framework vendors decided it was going to be. You can see from this programmable web uh, graph that came, those, uh, this is from 2011, the popularity of REST and simplicity wins again. Um, it was just astronomical. Um, and I mean, at this point, you know, they're only showing 2,500 APIs in here. Now, if you go on programmable web, there's over 13,000 APIs. And I guarantee 80% of them claim that they're REST. Now, 
the interesting thing is that only a handful of these public APIs actually support the notion of hypermedia. But Fielding in 2008 said that REST APIs must be hypertext driven. He considers it a key critical component for the evolvability of the system. So we have this world claiming that everything's REST, but in actual fact it's not. So the, the, the problem there is, if it's not what the guy who invented the term is, well, what is it, right? And so now we have this, and is it what the framework vendors say? Well, which framework vendor? <coughs> it's very hard to learn something when there are a million different definitions of what it is. I mean, even today, uh, you know, th there are only a handful of publicly available APIs that support hypermedia. Now, this is getting better. We are starting to see more traction and more people being convinced that hypermedia does actually have value in certain scenarios. Uh, and, and these are some good examples of uh, sites that actually use hypermedia within their public API. So, so what is this misinformation that I keep talking about? Uh, the, the, the problem, you go out and there's all these people writing these best, they create one API and then they say, well, this worked. I'm going to create a best practices because I believe I've learned everything that I need to know about uh, writing REST APIs. And they come with all kinds of wonderful guidance, like this one. Your URL should be RESTful. So here's my question, right? Based on what people understand REST to be, can people tell, can anybody, is anybody brave enough to tell me what they believe, which one of these URLs they believe are RESTful and which ones aren't? Blah, 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 blah. See, the thing is, a URL in a RESTful system is an identifier. It's just that. It's an, it identifies a resource on the web. There is no part of the RESTful constraints that say, this is what your URL should look like. And there's nothing that says this is a good URL and this is a bad URL. So these are all just identifiers. They are, there is no such thing as a RESTful URL. It's just an identifier. So it can't be RESTful or not. How you interact with that identifier and how you use HTTP in order to interact with it can be RESTful or not RESTful. The problem is this whole discussion is not a battle. I mean, I took this snapshot a little while ago and you know go on stack overflow there's over 500 questions where people are asking about what is a restful url so where did this this whole restful url thing come from see this this come i mean here we say there's a uh, topic on the microformats wiki it talks about url conventions uh, and they were recommended conventions based on the work pioneered in Ruby on Rails. So here's a web framework that said, I want to be able to make it easy for people to do REST. And therefore, this is what we can do within the constraints of our framework to enable you to do that. And these conventions that were specific to limitations of the way you could do things in Rails became REST itself.
So you end up with this idea that, well, if you want to operate on a collection, you do this, and if you want to, you know, uh, The, the, we ended up with this set of conventions for this is how you interact with a web REST service. The problem is there's nothing wrong with a framework defining a set of conventions, but claiming that this is REST is like declaring that Facebook is the web. See, there are other frameworks out there. OData is a classic example. There's another system that uses HTTP. They've also defined their set of conventions. So, well, which one is it? Uh, are they both RESTful? Is one REST and one not REST? Like, it, 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 it's a pointless argument. In fact, recently, um, there, was, there was a standard created, uh, and it was initially called get off your I get off my lawn and it's a spec explaining why you sh standards should not define conventions about URLs in specifications and why the, this is bad for reuse and it is not an effective way of enable building web-based systems um, this this spec when it was finally uh, ratified it became called URI design and ownership um, which is not nearly as cool as URI get off my lawn um, but this is how bad it's got people actually are having to write specs telling people to stop defining conventions in specifications so another great one is exposure entities as resources and this is derived from this analogy that um, the way you understand REST is you look at uh, URIs as nouns. And you're using the HTTP methods as verbs against those nouns. And if, if anybody's familiar, there was a uh, blog post which was a How I Explained REST to My Wife by Ryan Tom. I, Tom. I, I don't know his name. Um, and it was actually a very good post. It, 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 it emphasized the distinction between defining a custom protocol uh, and focusing on every single endpoint as being a unique uh, operation, uh, which is the way we did it in SOAP, and turning that on our head and defining a more uniform interface where we just have a standard set of verbs that work against particular resources. Um, unfortunately, that, abs that abstraction only goes so far, it leaks like crazy, um, and it is overly limiting, but it is a useful abstraction unless you take it too far. And of course, people took it too far, and they said, oh, well, what that means is all our entities in our system, our domain entities, we're going to expose them as resources. Um, and if you look at that list of resources there, how many resources are there? How many resources do people believe that there are in that list of URLs there? Is order 23 and 24 the same resource or two different resources? It's two different resources. What about users? Name equals Bob, name equals Bill. This is a classic one. Uh, those are two different resources. A lot of people are believe that uh, users stop the resource identifier stops at uh, users and there's a reason for this 
Um, it's because See, if you look at the latest version of uh, RC3986, which is the URI spec, it says the query component contains non-hierarchical data that along with data that along with data in the path component serves to identify a resource within the scope of the URI serves to identify a resource. The problem is the previous version of the spec said this. The query component is a string of information to be interpreted by the resource. This was a mistake. And it was fixed in 39.86. But this is it's the same as the SOAP thing. You know, once you write something out in a spec, it's very hard sometimes to change people's opinions. But reality being name equals Bob, name equals Bill, are two completely different resources. Now, on the server side, from an implementation perspective, you may implement them using the same infrastructure, using the same controller. That's perfectly fine. But they are two distinct resources. And this is one of the reasons why it's really quite difficult to, when building in a web API, a framework for an API, um, to be able to create an infrastructure that is rest like a, a rest framework because the notion of resource resource is almost is more like an object than it is a class so it's hard to map an implementation concept to the notion of resource uh, and one of the early pieces of guidance that was given to microsoft when i was on the web api advisory board and we had advisors from across the industry not just microsoft people we have really smart people from across the industry and one of the key things they said is do not make web api a rest framework right you will fail make it an opinionated http framework and let people build rest stuff however they perceive rest stuff to be on top of it but don't try and implement something called rest because you will fail which they did, but then unfortunately, uh, there were things that were layered on top of Web API that turned it into a less than ideal framework. Another interesting thing about resources is, you know, and this goes back to the whole noun thing. Um, you can't assume that resources have to be something, right? I've got resources are allowed to process things they're allowed to do operations so you can put verbs in there the only danger with putting verbs in there is you got to make sure that the verbs don't contradict with the http method that you're using you know if you put you know delete in the uri and then as an element in the URI and then you use get is that's a really bad thing right because they you need to be consistent with the method and the description so by avoiding verbs in your URI it helps you avoid those contradictions it doesn't mean you can't put verbs in the URI it's just a piece of useful guidance to help you avoid it so these are perfectly valid resources. You know, printer, I can post to a printer queue in order to add something to the printer queue in order to make it post. I can, I can have a calculator where I can post an expression to and it can do calculations. Like I can do, you know, we'll get into post more in a second. 
Um, an interesting thing is instead of Leonard Richardson, who was one of the original authors of RESTful Web Services and also uh, an author in uh, the more recent edition of RESTful Web Services, uh, says instead of trying to figure out what a resource is, think of it in terms of what it does, which is really quite interesting because that's very much turning the notion of noun versus operation on its head. Um, as I say, the, the, the noun verb analogy was handy at first uh, to change people's thinking from soap contracts, but uh, you can't take that analogy too far. Uh, the post method, we have this perception that post is used for creating things. That's what it is. You post a collection and it adds a new thing. Yes, you can do that with post. But you can do so much more with post. Providing a, This is taken right out of the specification. You can provide a block of data, such as the fields entered in HTML, to a data handling process. And yes, post can be unsafe. It doesn't have to be unsafe. I often hear people say, oh, you can't use post there because you're doing a safe operation. No, post can be safe. You lose some benefits by making it, because, you know, if you're using post, then the caching infrastructure is not going to help you and um, therefore maybe gets better. But if you need to pass a big body, you can't pass a body with get, so use post. There's a possibility that if you're passing a big body, then you probably can't cache the results because there's a lot of input to that process. Therefore, you would end up with a massive number of cacheable rep representations that are being returned. So it's it's not uh, it, it's not a problem using po post is the catch-all, right? It's it's when you can't fit it on, into the other methods, then use post. There's not one specific purpose of post. The whole mapping of get put post delete to crud. Yes, you can do it. But if you limit yourself to that comparison, to that analogy, you will really struggle. You know, we're in a situation where we've traded off the ability to invent our own methods, verbs, which we can do in SOAP, and we're limiting ourselves just to these four methods. So uh, you need to get real creative in your use of resources. Uh, now, this is not the point of here. Here, Okay, so post, as said already, post is not necessarily create. Put is not necessarily update. You could be creating using a put. Delete doesn't have to physically delete. You can just flag for deletion. It's fine. And there are other methods that are very useful in HTTP. If you look at the notion of just crud, then you're dropping the other methods. Crud is a uniform way of exposing data. But REST isn't. REST is intended to provide services. It's a way, it's intended to expose an application workflow. We have this perception that REST, are, many people have this perception that REST API is about exposing your data. And it's, it's the kind of the startup thing is, the, yeah, we built this startup, we've created this service, and well, people want to do their own stuff. So we're going to just expose our data, and then we'll just let them have at it, right? And we'll see what they invent, right? 
but it, that's that's just not an economically sound way of doing things and it's not because it's not efficient way of building a distributed system rest apis need to be built upon use cases where you're solving actual specific problems you can't just say ah oh, here's my data go and do whatever you want with it well you could but you're very quickly going to find out you're retracting your API, just like Netflix pulled back their public API, just like ESPN pulled back their public API, because they realize that it's too expensive to manage that open-ended, here, just have at my data. Now, there are times and places where exposing raw data does make sense. And the whole linked data movement is a, is a lot about that. But you need to differentiate the linked data movement to REST. Linked data is about describing relationships between data and exposing data. And potentially government organizations can expose it. And um, uh, well-funded people who can handle the traffic of people doing arbitrary trade. Uh, arbitrary queries against their data can possibly handle it but you as a business who are trying to provide a specific service it's not economically viable to just expose your data this is a diagram from uh, Fowler's enterprise patents of enterprise architecture and uh, you can see here the service layer um, is where you have your integration gateway attached to. You don't integrate directly into your domain model. And this, this pattern, which comes from years and years ago, still holds completely true for REST. REST has no contracts. This is just, it, this, this comes down to REST is so simple, REST is so easy, and, and we don't have to worry about those horrible service contracts that break. No, all you're doing is you're just making the contracts implicit and hoping that the dynamic language that you're using won't break when you make changes and just dealing with it when it does break. Um, this is a, a, a very short-term perspective and you can live with it if your client happens to be a JavaScript application that you can update on the fly at the same time as you update your API. But when you start pushing uh, applications down to phones that uh, require updating via the App Store or you start getting into Internet of Things or you start deploying on devices that aren't continuously connected or are difficult to deploy updates to, uh, you need contracts. An application slash JSON and an application slash XML is not a contract. So let's talk about contracts. <laughs>